podcast from the Sunday night service at New Life Church. The Sunday night service reflects a desire to be rooted in the historic expressions of faith while engaging God with our whole being in the world today. For more information on New Life Church, you can visit our website at newlifechurch.org. We're continuing in our series on Luke. I resist the urge to laugh every week after that. It's just such a movie trailer theme song. Anyway, sorry. Wow. Um, It is epic, I suppose. It is Jesus' life. So here we are in the book of Luke, and um, we're continuing in our series on this. How many of you in here, just so I know how long to go with this opening illustration, how many of you are basketball fans? Like you'll watch the NBA games, whatever. Okay, okay, okay. So... So it, you know the legend of LeBron James, and you know sort of the, uh, how it almost seemed like destiny. Here's a kid born in Akron, Ohio, you know, and he's growing up, and he becomes this high school legend in, in, in the state of Ohio, uh, and, and so much so to the, to the point where um, uh, I think in his senior year of high school, he's on the cover of Sports Illustrated with the caption, The Chosen One. I mean, here's a guy that's, I mean, talk, talk about hyping up a person with theme music. This is LeBron, okay, on the cover of sport, high school senior. And the part of the, 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 the lore, the mythology, the, the legend of LeBron uh, is, all, is because it just so happened that the year, or his junior year, he tried to appeal to see if he could go uh, enter the NBA draft a year early, and he was denied that permission. So he had to wait till he finished his senior year. Well, when he finished his senior year, Guess which NBA team had the number one pick in the draft? Cleveland Cavaliers. So it was like, okay, here we go. This is it. This is destiny. It's the kid who grew up in Ohio now rescuing uh, an abysmal team from you. Sorry if you're a Cavaliers fan. Um, it actually gets worse. But uh, so, so here, here, here they are thinking, this is amazing. He's the chosen one. It's, it's happening. And LeBron himself at some point probably bought into this legend, the legend of himself and his talents, and this was before he took his talents somewhere else, but so he has tattooed on, on his back that phrase, the chosen one, and it becomes kind of this thing where he's, he's uh, you know, building into, feeding into this image and this, this, uh, uh, this almost mythic figure, you know, this guy that's going to bring Cleveland back, and he wears number 23 to make us think of Jordan, and they, everybody's talking, oh, is he the one, you know? And so all of a sudden, you know, the, things are going well. His career is going good. He has this, I think it was maybe three years ago or so, game six in the Eastern Conference Finals where he has this amazing game where he scores 29 of Detroit's or of Cleveland's final 30 points in the game. I mean, just you could call that ball hog or really good. I don't know. But either way, they were down zero games to two in the best of seven series, and LeBron leads them to win four in a row. They go to the NBA Finals and get swept by the Spurs. So, so all of a sudden, he's meeting adversity, and he realizes he can't really get there. And so then the status of being the chosen one seems to not be as important. And so even if you're not a sports fan, it would have been hard last summer to ignore all the hype about where's LeBron going to go to. And he has this huge ESPN special, you know, where I was at, we were at a restaurant that night when, when the, the, the decision was announced, and like waiters and waitresses were talking about. I mean, I, it's, it's silly that it, would, it gained this huge, huge sort of uh, concern. And, and of course, the, the climactic statement was him saying, 
I've decided to take my talents to South Beach and to go and play with the Miami Heat. Well, then this controversy started with, wait a second, you're the chosen one, but now you're going to a team where, plus you, there'll be three all-stars, and then you had Jordan coming out and saying, I would have never teamed up with Magic back in the day, you know? And everybody's sort of saying, you're not really all that. Now, I'm telling you this whole story because uh, I like sports, for one, but so I like to work it in when I can. But secondly, there is something about the disappointment that occurs when a person that you thought is the answer, the one, the, the, the chosen one, the one who is going to end this, uh, ends up leaving your team. Uh, there's a great disappointment with that. I think you can think about, uh, imagine, uh, maybe you don't have to imagine, maybe you can recall voting for a particular political candidate and believing the platform that they were running on and, and then them winning whatever the seat was that they were running for and you saying, yes, this is it. This person's going to change it. This is, the, this is the time and this is the person and this is the one. And then all of a sudden, yeah, I guess not really. And there's this epic buildup only to be met with epic disappointment. And we are almost conditioned to think of a person who's been chosen, uh, to be cynical about it, to kind of say, okay, well, great, cool. Well, how long before they disappoint me? How long before they start using their position or their authority or their power in a way that is acting in their self-interest? And we, we, all, we all sort of expect it. And so it's difficult when we say, well, what does it mean to be the chosen ones? What does it mean for us to be anointed or called. Here in this story in Luke, we're, we're, we're seeing Jesus in this very dramatic moment saying that He is the chosen one. Saying that He is the anointed one, which in a moment I'll, I'll try to unpack just a few parts of how significant that phrase would have been. And we want to see as we study this passage tonight what Jesus meant by this and what he, how He intended to go about his chosenness, how he would handle his chosen anointed status. And as we unpack that, it's going to, fa it's going to leave us faced with a couple of decisions, how we respond to Jesus himself, but also what it means for us as followers, as disciples of Jesus. Okay, So Luke 4, uh, verse 11 is where we'll start. And I'm reading out of the NRSV tonight. Let's see... Uh, actually, it's not verse 11, is it? It's uh, verse 14. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began teaching in the synagogues, uh, synagogue on, uh, let's see, sorry, and was praised by everyone. And when he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. Here's Jesus going to the, it's, he's back in Nazareth, back in the place where he grew up. And what does he do? He's going to the synagogue. He's worshiping with his fellow Jews. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Now, we're not sure if the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was the assigned reading of the day. Uh, maybe similar to our assigned Old Testament readings, New Testament readings, although we're not following a lectionary per se. I'm choosing them to go with each sermon. But we're not sure if this was the assigned reading for the day or if this is Jesus taking the scroll and, and, and going to his, his own passage. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And then he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your now this is massive. When Jesus quotes from this phrase and says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, it's one thing if he was just reading it and, you know, and said their version of the word of the Lord and they said, thanks be to God. No, but Jesus says, by the way, this is fulfilled today. As in, I, I, me, I am the anointed one. Now that phrase is the Meshiach, the Messiah. To say, I am the anointed one, is to say, I am that chosen, I am Messiah. Now what in the world would that have meant to them? Because when you and I hear Messiah, it sounds like a cool title that we can give to Jesus. And certainly there's something uh, uh, about that. But, but, but Messiah itself meant something, meant the one appointed, the one chosen, anointed one of God that would do a few specific things. Think of maybe 150 years earlier than Jesus is Judas Maccabees leading the Maccabean revolt and acting in a way that, that was messianic, that was Messiah-like. And then later, uh, several decades after Jesus, is uh, Simon ben Kosiba leading this revolt, freeing Israel. And they called him a messianic figure and they applied Messiah verses to him. So what is this Messiah thing? If you remember, if you've read in, your, in Deuteronomy, there's a famous chapter in Deuteronomy 28 uh, that, that uh, a lot of Christians like to quote. And Deuteronomy 28 sets out these conditions. And it says, look, if you'll do this, then I'll bless you. And if you don't do this, then you know, all this stuff. And it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful passage uh, because it appeals to our cause relationship, cause and effect sort of understanding of life and we think this is great Deuteronomy 20 you see look God lays it out it's the word of God if I do this then this will happen none of this will happen and so but when's the first time that you question Deuteronomy 28 the first time you actually do get a disease or a sickness or so, and then you sort of say okay wait a second maybe Deuteronomy 28 is not true maybe the if thens maybe I'm not understanding it right look this exact dilemma was faced by the Jewish people a long time ago. In other words, we're not the first ones to sort of read these if-then clauses and then say, but how come it's not true? See, the Jews, they experienced exile because of their unfaithfulness, so they experienced the back end of the if you disobey, this will happen. They did experience that. But then they come back to Jerusalem and they rebuild the wall and they restore the temple and yeah, okay, it's kind of a shabbier temple than Solomon's, but still, it's a temple and they're trying to reclaim and recover worship and all of this stuff. And then, uh-oh, here come the Syrians running over them. And then they drive out the Syrians, and then, uh-oh, here come the Romans. And so by the time of Jesus, even before the time of Jesus, the Jews were faced with the dilemma. Either we say that Deuteronomy 28 is not true, that God does not keep His promise, that God does not reward faithfulness, and either we say that, or we figure out a different way that God is going to be faithful. Hey, this is a dilemma we could all relate to, isn't it? 
And, and so what happens in Judaism is they begin to say, all right, wait a second, Deuteronomic Judaism is not so clean cut. It's not this, if you do this, then this, and if, you know. What they start to develop is a kind of view that says there is this age and then there is the age to come. Now, unlike us, their age to come was not about getting out of here. Unlike us, their age to come hope was not, well, okay, well, I don't know, don't worry, life may kind of stink down here on earth, but God's got heavenly rewards for you. They weren't thinking about compensation, they were thinking about restoration. So for the Jewish hope, it was not about leaving earth and getting up to heaven, but it was when will God send His chosen one to begin to defeat His enemies, usher in peace, and restore everything. Do you see this? See, we think of a kind of dualism of earth and heaven, and they believed in that. They believed in a heaven as God's space, earth as human space. The difference is they weren't trying to figure out how to get from here to there. That's just not the point. The point was always, when will the God of heaven bring his kingdom to earth? It was always the point. So the question you see being asked in, in the New Testament is not, Jesus, what must we do to get to heaven? Nobody's asking that question. What they're saying is, what do we have to do to inherit eternal life, or translation, the age to come? Their biggest concern is, Jesus, when will the age to come begin, and who gets to be judged in it, and who gets to inherit it and enjoy it? Who are the beneficiaries of Who are your people that will enjoy the benefits of the age to come? And who are the ones that are your enemies that are going to get judged? And don't you think they filled in their minds who they knew the enemies were? Oh, you bet. It's the Romans. It was that guy. It was that guy. They had in their minds, okay, when the age to come begins, God's going to judge those guys, and you're going to get it, Rome. But they also understood that this was a time when they were going to be restored and they, and they would experience all, all the Jews who had died would have bodily resurrection and it was, it was going to usher in this whole new age. What they didn't expect and what Jesus does is that the age to come begins with him and yet has not fully landed. So Jesus, later on, the disciples are wrestling with, what do we make of the fact that one man experiences bodily resurrection but like no one else did. Like Abraham, where's Abraham? We certainly thought we'd see all of them, all the Jewish patriarchs. But you're, you mean to tell me the age to come has begun, but only it happened to one guy first? Anyway, okay. That, that's Sunday school starting next week at 11 a.m. On, on Christian hope and all that. I'll be teaching them four weeks on that. Okay, there's a card about that. You can pick that up. Okay, I, I, I could easily uh, sidetrack here, but I won't. When Jesus starts saying that this has been fulfilled in your hearing, he's saying to them, look, I am the kingdom bringer. I am the Messiah. I am the chosen. I am the one that's bringing this hope, the thing you've been waiting for. And imagine to some degree this excitement of saying, okay, great. Except that the way Jesus is quoting Isaiah is a bit different than what they thought. First of all, Jesus is announcing good news for the lowly. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, he says, to preach good news to the poor. Now when we think of that word, good news, we think gospel, and in our minds, gospel, we run to it right away. Gospel means four spiritual laws. No, 
Let's hear this with their ears first. That word, euangelion, gospel, is this announcement, the royal announcement about who is king. It's a Caesar word. It doesn't show up anywhere in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's a word from their marketplace. It's a word they would have heard when people said, Caesar is king, good news. Except that in Luke's gospel, he's already told us, who announces, I bring you good news? Who said that in Luke's gospel? The angels. And whose birth were they singing about? Jesus's. All of a sudden, they've ripped a page from Caesar's legend, from Caesar's own mythology that said that there, were, there, were, that there was good news of his birth and they're saying, no, the, the real good news is of Jesus' birth. The real good news is that Jesus is king. That, to, to say, I've come to preach good news, to proclaim, is at its core. I, I've come to announce the kingship of God. Jesus saying, I've come to bring good news to the poor, at its core level is saying, I've come to announce that God's the real king of this world. And I am proof of it, is what Jesus was saying. The good news has come. Jesus is announcing good news for the lowly. Think of the people that are highlighted here in this Isaiah verse that he's referencing. The poor, the prisoner, the blind, the oppressed. None of whom were allowed at the synagogue that day. Think about that. So you're a Jew, you're hoping, you're waiting for Messiah. And then he comes and he says... You, you may have forgotten this, but I've come for the poor. The blind and the oppressed and the prisoner. And they're saying, well, okay, but what about the faithful? What about the obedient? What about the ones who have persevered? And I, you have to wonder if Jesus at some level is trying to say to them, can you see yourself as the poor, as the prisoner, as the oppressed? Is the blind. The passage continues in a very interesting way. He says to them, it's been fulfilled in your hearing. And then in verse 22, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And he, and he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, do here also in your hometown the things that we've heard that you did at Capernaum, which, by the way, as an interesting parallel, is not too far off from the very temptations that Satan himself was trying to give Jesus in the wilderness. Do this. Do a magic trick, Jesus. Come on, show us. Heal yourself. Do this. And you have to wonder if Luke's trying to tell us that it was Satan tempting him this way, and now it's his own people suggesting the same, or Jesus is predicting that they will. And he, said to, and he said, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a severe famine in all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. I know we're not all geography experts, but Sidon, not in Israel. This is Jesus saying that the prophet Elijah was sent, not to a Jewish widow, Though there were plenty of them, he says, likely, but sent to a Gentile widow. He goes on. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Syria, also not in Israel. You see what Jesus is doing? He's saying, look, 
I know that you're not going to really believe who I am here, but it doesn't matter. There's a long history of you rejecting prophets. Ouch, Jesus. It's like your first sermon, man. It's like, didn't you go to homiletics class or, you know? When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. Yeah. And they got up and drove him out of the town and led him to the brow of the hill. Now, now Jesus might really need angels to catch him like Satan was tempting you know, On which their town was built so that they might hurl him off the cliff, but he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. The Elijah and Elisha stories are being told to, to bring us to, to pay, make us pay attention to a particular point. That God's concern was never Israel as an end in itself, but Israel as a means to reach all peoples. All peoples. All peoples. All peoples. In a way, Jesus is announcing favor for the outsiders. He's announcing good news for the lowly, but He's also announcing favor for the outsiders. There's something very interesting about this Isaiah 61 passage that Jesus quotes because he stops just short of it. He ends with to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and the phrase he leaves out is, and to execute vengeance on his enemies. And if you memorized Isaiah, which there's a good chance that good synagogue-going Jews were familiar with Isaiah, the Dead Sea Scrolls has three, Old Te- the most, the three books that they had the most copies of in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, Psalms, Isaiah, they probably knew this one. And so Jesus rolls it up, and they're probably thinking, whoa, whoa, what about the judgment part? See those Romans? Come on, Jesus. If you're him, then let's go. When do we go to war? When, when's the revolution? And Jesus stops with favor, the year of the Lord's favor. He's reinterpreting Isaiah in the light of his own life and calling because he's the Messiah, he's the Son of God, and he's saying, look, I'm here, I'm the chosen one, I'm the anointed one, I'm the but, but look, I'm bringing good news, I'm bringing favor, but I'm postponing judgment. Now we say in the creed every week, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Okay, it, it, there is one coming. But Jesus is saying in this first arrival, I'm here to announce favor. And it's going to be to people that you maybe weren't thinking would be included. Remember Elijah? He went to a widow from Sidon. Remember Elisha? He went to Naaman the Syrian. In other words, God has always been concerned with outsiders. God has always desired to bring them in. Imagine how scandalous that would have been to them. It's much stronger than drafting LeBron James and then having him play for another team in the same conference and beating you by 30 points. You're our Messiah, Jesus. What do you mean? Favor for the outsiders. What do you mean good news for the lowly? We're the faithful, the obedient, we're the diligent. We're not the poor or the prisoner. Or the, I mean, fine if you want to. But how many times does God surprise us with his agenda? How many times do we think we know 
what he ought to do with these people or those people. And he surprises us by saying, actually, I'm here to announce favor. What? Don't you know what these enemies have done to us? But you know, maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves. Because maybe the real sticking point is, do you see yourselves as the poor, the prisoner, the blind, and the oppressed? It'd be hard to welcome a Messiah that you're not convinced you need. It'd be hard to say, well, great, that the Lord has anointed you. You're the anointed one, which is what Messiah means, and you're here. Okay, great. And fine if you want to take care of those people. What happens to us the longer we've been in church, and the longer we've been around Christians? What, what is Has something happened to us where over time we kind of have an us and a them? Where... My friend Gary has challenged me to don't put the definite article the in front of a category, you know, the poor. Because that's very sort of excludes you from it, doesn't it? But if we say to us, to we who are poor, not, yes, economically for those people, Luke was addressing very literal social outsiders, but the oppressed, the prisoner, the blind. The anointed one became the lowly one to bring good news to us. The anointed one became the lowly one to bring good news to us. The question is, can we see ourselves as that? Do we believe that we are that? Or do we sort of think that, you know, this is my favorite um, misrepresentation of the gospel. Come to Jesus, he'll give you a new start. Really? That's all you needed was a second shot. Wow. You ever been in math class back, way back in the day where the teacher called you up to do a problem on the board and you had no clue how to solve the equation? And you're, you know, here's Greg Martin, PhD in math. Never happened to Greg. It's totally foreign. And you're sweating in front of the class trying to solve the equation and, and it's clearly wrong. And the teacher says, I've got good news. I'm going to give you a new start. You're like, can I just sit down? I don't want a new start. If all you think that you need is a new start, we've not begun to see ourselves as the poor, the prisoner, the blind, the oppressed. You know what links all four of those people? They're powerless. The poor in that day is not like the poor in our day where there's at least some things that they can do, there's something that they can do to sort of change their status. You are doomed. If that's the status you're in, it's over. Get used to it. This is your life. There is no getting out of this. Prisoner. Very often they were in prison because they were debtors. They couldn't pay back a debt. We're stuck. I was going to bail them out. It's a little different day. The blind, obviously physically impaired, left to beg like Bartimaeus was. Oppressed, held under the thumb of the power controllers. 
how can we welcome this Messiah if we don't see that we are truly at our end? That we have no recourse. We can't. We can't change this. We can't will ourselves to be better. We can't struggle with tears. And finally we say, I, I, I am the poor. I am the prisoner. I am the blind. I am the oppressed. But Jesus, the anointed one, became the lowly one, Philippians 2, so that good news may be brought to us. That's beautiful. But there's more to this story than this. Because if we were to stop there and say, okay, well, that's wonderful. Well, isn't that great? Man, praise God. Gotta love it. And this is where I think our grace, the reason we struggle with, uh, maybe, one of, maybe one of the reasons we struggle with this grace works, oh, is it crazy? Is because in our minds, salvation is about you going from here to here, right? From earth to heaven. So if salvation is about going from earth to heaven, then grace is just about making sure that I get to heaven, right? But if salvation is God's plan to put everything fractured and fragmented by sin, to put it back together again, to make heaven and earth new again, to make our bodies new again in the, when the resurrection comes, when all, if His plan is that, if salvation is not escape from here to here, but if salvation is the age to come dawning in its fullness, overtaking, remaking, if that's salvation, then grace is saying, you get in on that. Then all of a sudden, there's no like, well, okay, so I'm in, but like, how much of this do I really have to do now? It's like, adventures in missing the point, man. Because why has God begun with you? If God's plan is to put it all back together, why has he begun with you? So that through you, he can put other things back together. Does that sound too strong? Do you know that when the Christians were called Christians in Antioch, as the book of Acts tells us, that they were called that as a reference to say these guys are kind of like little Christs, Christians. But Christ, of course, is not Jesus' last name, as if his parents were Joseph Christ and Mary Christ. Christ is the title for Messiah. What if you read that phrase in Acts that the followers of Jesus were then called little Messiah? What if because we are in Jesus, then what is true of Him becomes true of us? And so we now can say, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom to the oppressed, sight to the blind, release for those who are oppressed. See, the thing that the Jews, the reason they got so mad at Jesus in the synagogue is because He was reminding them that their chosenness was not for their own sake. 
The chosen are chosen for the sake of the unchosen, so to speak. Israel was chosen so that through them, blessing could flow. It's what He promised Abraham. And Jesus is saying, if I am the anointed one, then guess what that means? It means it's flowing out. It means break the doors down, tear the walls down. The kingdom is coming to earth. So what does that mean for us? It means that we can't say, isn't it wonderful? Jesus, the anointed one, became the lowly one so that we can have good news. Hallelujah. Shall we have a potluck? Love potlucks. But that we say, wait a minute. If it's come to us, then it's meant to come through us. If it's come to us, then it's meant to come through us. That the lowly ones now, we see ourselves, we're the lowly ones. And if Jesus is the anointed one who became the lowly one, then we are the lowly ones who become the anointed ones. We carry this to the poor, to the weak, to the oppressed, to the blind. We are the lowly ones who have been made anointed ones so that we bring good news to the world. We are the lowly ones who have been made anointed ones to bring good news to the world. In other words, Jesus doesn't intend to stop His plan of salvation with getting you right. Getting you right with God it's phase one. It's then supposed to work its way out to where you and other, others get right. Racial reconciliation, all of this stuff. And then we play a part in setting it all right. Now let me be clear. I don't believe that we bring the kingdom. Jesus is the kingdom bringer. He's the Messiah. He will bring it in its fullness when He returns. That's why we say every week in the Creed, we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world above. No, no. The life of the world to come. We're not thinking about a here-here difference. We're thinking about a here-here difference. That'll change the way you think about hope. But it means that there's something that the Spirit of God means to do through us. There's something that He means to accomplish through us. So, well, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm not really much... I mean, it's pretty cool to say that that person is an anointed one, but me? <laughs> well, I mean, it's just... But I wonder if we, what would change if we started to think about our jobs that way. Get up in the morning, you drive to work and say, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor today at work. Recovery of sight, on and on and on. In short, the Spirit of the Lord is on me today because I'm in Jesus and I'm carrying on the mission of Messiah. I'm following Jesus filled with the Spirit, lifting up those who are stuck. Lifting up those who are bound. What does that mean? What does that look like? 
Now, I think it could look like all kinds of different things. I was thinking today of Curtis and Lisa Martinell. They, they've adopted one girl from China, and then recently they just adopted a little girl from Ethiopia and finally got to bring her home just a month or so ago, maybe two months now. And, uh, and got, I got to see her in church here a few Sunday nights ago when we had the baptism service. I thought, uh-oh, her first night to church and it's a zoo. You know, like we're overflowing with people. But rescuing, bringing good news to someone for all intents and purposes was stuck. What do we do about that? Are we aware of that? Who's stuck? Is it good news that the Messiah has come? Is it good news here? Or is it just good news there? Is it good news now? Because Jesus came. Or is it all just good news later? Or does some of it spill out into now? Think about Reed and Jeanette hosting a friend of theirs who's going through transition. They're like, come on, stay with us. For, I just, I love that. I met him first, and then he was talking about that. Look, there are little ways that we do this. And if we're going to say that the poor is not someone else, and the reality is that we're all broken, the poor, the prisoner, the blind, that we all are to some degree or another, then maybe the prayer is not, well, who, Lord? Open our eyes, Lord. Open our eyes as we go to work today. Open our eyes as we have conversations with others today. Oh, the Spirit of the Lord is upon us because the Lord has anointed us. What if we believed that? What if we believed that not only are we welcome, have we been welcomed in, that we've been called the anointed ones now? That we're not just the lowly who are in need, but somehow because of Jesus, we are now the anointed ones saying, okay, well, well, Lord. And then we can say, like Peter did in the gates outside the temple years after this, I don't have silver and gold, but what I got, I give to you. What we got is the Spirit of the Lord. What we got is the Messiah working in us through His Spirit to announce good news to the lowly, favor to the outsider. Who's outside? Who feels like they're stuck? How can we announce good news, favor to them? Let's pray. You know, after the service, every night we do have some members of our prayer team that stand, I think, at one side or another that are ready to pray with you if you want that. And I think, um, I think we can say at least two things. Probably there's some of you that feel like you're too much on the outside, too far gone, too this, too that, too messed up, too stained to whatever too stuck to know that Jesus has come for you to announce to you there's good news 
I'm here. I'm bringing you back. I'm bringing you in. Don't respond with stubbornness or pride. Let there be a brokenness in your heart that says, yep, yep, I am stuck. I need it. Help. New Year's resolution's already gone bad. Then there are others of us, probably maybe more, we need to say, all right, show us the world before us. Open our eyes. Open our eyes. Open our eyes, Lord, to the world before us, to people all around us. Oh God, may we have the brokenness in our hearts to know that we are the poor, the prisoner, the oppressed, the blind, that we needed you, Jesus. We still need you. You are our only hope. Oh, Jesus, give us hearts that are soft and broken and humble each day, never strong in our own righteousness, but strong in you. And oh, Jesus, fill us with the Spirit of God so that we, the body of Christ, Messiah's body, is still on earth. So may it be that your kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven in small ways all around us. Open our eyes. Open our eyes in the conversations, in the small talk, in the big moments. Make us carriers. Fill us up, Holy Spirit, tonight in a fresh way. We'll say with conviction, yes, 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 we are little messiahs walking out of here, carrying the spirit of the sovereign Lord, announcing good news, announcing favor, announcing you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Everybody said, amen.